reading of God's word. The text for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. I will be reading in Spanish, and the English translation will be on the screen. Es ya del dominio público que hay entre ustedes un caso de inmoralidad sexual que ni siquiera entre los paganos se tolera a saber que uno de ustedes tiene por mujer la esposa de su padre. Y de esto se sienten orgullosos. No debieran más bien haber lamentado lo sucedido y expulsado de entre ustedes al que hizo tal cosa. Yo, por mi parte, aunque no estoy físicamente entre ustedes, si estoy presente en espíritu, y ya, y ya he juzgado como si estuviera presente al que cometió este pecado. Cuando se reúnan en el nombre de nuestro Señor Jesús y con su poder, y yo los acompañe en espíritu, entreguen a este hombre a Satanás para la destrucción de su naturaleza pecaminosa a fin de que su espíritu sea salvado en el día del Señor. Hacen mal en jactarse. ¿No se dan cuenta de que un poco de levadura hace fermentar toda la masa? Desháganse de la vieja levadura para que sean masa nueva, panes sin levadura, como lo son en realidad. Por Cristo, nuestro Cordero Pascual, ya ha sido sacrificado. Así que celebremos nuestra Pascua no con la, la vieja levadura, que es la malicia y la perversidad, sino con pan sin levadura, que es la sinceridad y la verdad. This is God's word. What should a church do if a member of the church is sleeping with their stepmom? That's the opening question. And I start there not because it's an issue in this church. Just let me take that off the table, right? This isn't like, oh, this is a really relevant topic. There's you know, several instances of this happening in the church. It's not that. This is where Paul starts in the opening chapter. And as a public speaker with your intro, you're always trying to find that hook that gets anybody's attention. And honestly, I couldn't figure out. I was even thinking, like, do I tell a story of church discipline? Well, none of them are quite as juicy as the thing that Paul is dealing with with in these opening verses. And just check this out, verses 1 through 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who is doing this? So Paul gives it as an example because the church that he is writing to, this local church in the city of Corinth, ancient Corinth, has this as their case study. This is what's going on in their church. And we don't know the specifics of this uh, situation like those in the church of Corinth would have known them. We don't know the answers to these types of questions. Did the father die or was this a divorce situation? We have no idea about what the specifics. What we do know, based on how Paul worded it, is that this is an ongoing situation. This isn't just something that the person struggled with, they repented, and now they're back in fellowship. This is an ongoing action that this person is not turning from. And we know that this person confesses to be a Christian. They are considered part of this church. The stepmom, probably not, because she's not under uh, church discipline in this situation. But Paul is going to call this church to deal with this man who is in this ongoing relationship of immorality to uh, be held accountable for those actions. 
So at this point, Paul doesn't even give a theological framework for why sleeping with a relative is a bad and moral thing. We get more of a robust uh, theology and a framework for sexuality in the coming chapters, but here he just makes his point by appealing to what? The pagans. This is people that are outside the church. They don't share the same convictions and foundational worldview as God's people. And so he just says, how do those people that don't worship our God, how do they feel about this situation? And he says, they're not down with it either. This goes against their standards. They don't tolerate this type of immorality. That's what's taking place here, is is the type of thing that even the general society doesn't even tolerate. And we know, based on some evidence, that in the broader society at this time, uh, somebody would be punished for uh, doing this sort of thing by losing property or getting exiled or losing their social status or what modern people call get the person canceled. All right, That's what would have happened even in the general society outside of the church of Corinth. So that's how the broader society would react. But how should the church, how should God's people react? And he he reminds them on this based on what the Old Testament already declares, that the, the Old Testament and the Holy Scriptures also prohibit this behavior. But how are they responding? How are God's people in this local church responding? And he says, you are proud. They should have gone into mourning. They should be grieving that this sin is taking place, but instead, they're cool with it. Instead of being down with what's going on with this man, they should rather remove him from fellowship, or as the last verse of this section says, to expel them from fellowship. So this brings up, and this is where Paul goes from here. He doesn't dwell on this specific situation, but he starts to unpack a theology of what's called church discipline. And in in doing that, I want to make five different points on that topic in this sermon based on this text that doesn't cover all the ground that a church ought to on a loaded, hot topic like this, uh, but hopefully it'll at least generate some conversation amongst yourselves as a result of the sermon. So the first thing, church discipline is a big deal. Look at verses 3 through 5. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So Paul, to remind you, is not in Corinth. He's at a different location. Though he reminds them he's still bound with them through the Holy Spirit and in that sense is with them and connected to them and this situation. And what's Paul's judgment on this situation? What is Paul saying here? He says that he judges this situation as bad, as immoral. And he's clear that he's not saying that as some sort of personal opinion. Rather, he says this is a judgment that he's pronouncing in the name of our Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying that his judgment about this situation is in sync with the heart of Jesus Christ. The way that Christ sees this situation is the way that Paul sees it and the way that Jesus wants 
his people to deal with it is the same as Paul's. This is not based on Paul's opinion, but rather the authority of Christ that he says these things. And so Paul gets specific about the type of church discipline that he has in mind. He wants to get the church together, and in this gathering, it's not just the people of God who are present, but also the power of the Lord Jesus that's present with them in that gathering. So it's important to note that for Paul, this power is not imaginary. He believes that when God's people gather in his name, in obedience to God's word in Christ and what Christ commands, and they are confronting an individual who's bringing some sort of unholiness into the assembly, that when that happens, it's not just some type of worldly court that's happening, but an assembly under the authority and the power of Jesus Christ who raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, and continues to rule and reign alive from heaven, and that that sovereign power, in a sense, is there among them when they're gathered in his name. As Jesus himself taught in Matthew chapter 18, that where two or three are gathered, that he is there among them. What happens next in this assembly uh, is, is detailed and described as handing this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. How's that for a description of what church discipline is? Hand somebody over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does that mean? To hand somebody over to Satan it helps to understand that phrase by contrasting it to what it means to be in Christ. To be in Christ means you enjoy life and abundant joy in the presence of Christ and with God's people, with fellowship with them. To be handed over to Satan, in contrast, is to be placed outside of this life and fellowship, no longer under the lordship of Christ, but under the destructive evil of Satan. That's what Paul has in mind, that this this kind of handing over is what's taking place. But what does this practically look like, to hand somebody over to Satan? That sounds intense, and it is, but what would that look like in your day-to-day life? What would that look like in an assembly like this? Would it be like a church service out in an open field, gathered around a bonfire where we burn all of our secular CDs and then discipline this person by casting them out? Is it some type of weird ritual like that? No, 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 no. That's like youth camp in the 90s, okay? That's what I just described. This is different, right? This is a more, this is a more uh, a practical way that this is unpacked throughout Scripture, and we get a hint on what it looks like if you look at uh, verse 11, where he uses this phrase where he says that anybody that's in ongoing sin uh, and that requires church discipline, that we should not even eat with such people. That's what it says in verse 11. Now, this may sound like you're stopping uh, communication with a person altogether, and if you see this person in public, that you go to the other side of the street and just kind of shield your eyes. That's what it kind of sounds like, that you are shunning this person. And, and some people might interpret these verses to mean that, but I disagree. Eating with somebody in this context and in the context of Scripture is a tangible way to say that I have fellowship with you in the name of Jesus. So if you're not eating and having fellowship with somebody, it's saying that this reality of Christ and his blood and the cross and his resurrection and following his commands and his ways, this thing that has bounded our fellowship together is no longer intact 
And so now I do not even eat with you in the same sense. This is a relationship when it's based on fellowship. It's a relationship that's united around the worship of Jesus, around taking the Lord's Supper together, around prayer and Bible studies in our home, around serving Jesus uh, in our community, in his name. And it's a reality that says that because of your ongoing sin that you don't acknowledge and that you don't turn from, the nature of our relationship has changed. It can't be the same. I can't eat with you and have fellowship with you the way we ought to and the way that we have because of what's going on in your life. So why are we doing this? One of the reasons I'm trying to say is, one, is practically you can't. This person is living such a hypocritical life by confessing Christ, yet living in rebellion against his commands that the relationship can't be the same anymore. And some of you, I know, I've talked to you that you've had this happen in your life, and maybe that person didn't go into some type of active church discipline situation in that person's church, but you know because of this destructive work and this destructive choice a person made in his life or her life that your relationship changed that you can't have fellowship anymore. And it changed from this, this enjoyable fellowship in the Lord with when you get together, there's just this elephant in the room that by grace, and if you are a good friend, you've got to address it and you've got to lean into it and say, like, I can't come to this table with you anymore until we look at this and you turn from it. I can't, I can't study God's word with you anymore because, because you, you confess Christ, but you don't obey what he commands. We have to address this before we can go back to fellowship with one another. Why would you do that to somebody? Sounds kind of harsh. And is that the goal? Is that the end, just to ostracize somebody from fellowship in Christ? If you looked at these verses and you're listening, you see what Paul's hope is for what happens next is he hopes for what? Restoration. When he says the destruction of the flesh, it's not talking about the person's physical body. Paul often uses the imagery of flesh to mean our sin nature, the thing about us that's opposed to God, and so that by handing him over to this destructive pattern. The hope is that, that, that he would eventually come back to restoration, come back to forgiveness, come back to grace, come back to fellowship by turning from this destructive pathway back to life in Jesus Christ. I often think about how there's a, a good analogy with good parenting or even good friendship. When the stakes are so high because you have a friend or a child that is just doing something that you know it's going to hurt them, it's going to destroy them, it's going to wreck their life and their relationship, and you're pleading, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and they refuse to listen, they refuse to turn, and you get to the point that you're just like, fine, fine, just do it. I'm going to hand you over to this destructive path that you're on. But if you do that in love, your hope is that the, 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 the pain and the, the destruction from that pathway will eventually rattle them so much to say, like, what am I doing? And like a prodigal son with his face in pig slop says, why am I doing this? When I had so much life and abundance back in this fellowship and the hope in handing somebody over to this pathway of destruction 
is that they finally come to their senses and come back to life in Christ and fellowship in the church for their restoration. And good friendships and good parenting always balance this type of discipline with love and hope that this will eventually lead to restoration and not destruction forever. So that's how high the stakes are with church discipline, and that's why it's an emphasis of script in Scripture. But let's talk a, lot, a little bit about the process of church discipline. The process. Because you have to understand that in this context, it got to this breaking point that required the whole church to lean into this issue. But most of the time, it doesn't start, start there. Let's go to uh, Gospel of Matthew chapter 18 briefly to see how Jesus teaches his church to address these types of situations from the beginning. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If your brother or sister sins, go out and point their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to even the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am, there I am with them. Uh, kind of a quick aside, that's a classic verse that people will often give to say like, yeah, if you just go to a pub with a couple of brothers, that's church because where two or three are gathered around Guinness, that's where church happens, right? And I would love to, I'm actually really thinking about this to do a sermon series called Out of Context about verses like this that are often take, taken out of context because the context of this verse is church discipline, not how to define a church, but rather church discipline. And that language of two or three gathering together in, in sync with the ways and calling of Jesus is talking about how to confront a brother or sister in persistent sin. That's, that's what's going on here. And a lot of these themes you already heard have, have popped up in Paul's writing. But what I'm going to focus on here are those first verses that I read about this process. Here again, you're dealing with a Christian, someone who professes to believe in Jesus, a brother or sister in Christ, and the person is in persistent, ongoing sin. What do you do? Paul, not Paul here, Jesus is teaching that this is not essentially time for Minnesota nice, where you avoid the conflict and you avoid the situation because it's nice. No, the nice thing to do is to bring it up. And so if you have somebody in your life that you know is doing something destructive and they're not trying to fight against it and try to turn from it, Right? There is no like struggle or recognition that this, I don't want this in my life, but they are in a sense at peace with it. You confront that person. You point out the fault. You have the tough conversation. And you say, hey, our faith does not praise these actions in your life. Stop it. Turn back to the Lord. Receive his forgiveness. Commit yourself to his ways again. And if that doesn't work, Jesus says, after probably multiple attempts, you get some help. You take a couple more people 
Uh, maybe people that have a lot of social capital in this person's life to speak into this person's life. And you, you, as a smaller group of people, try to convince the person to change course. And now you also have a witness so that if the person says no, and they remain committed to their destructive behavior, now you have a group of people that have witnessed this, this rebellion and this hardness of heart. And if that too fails, then Jesus says, take it to the church, which means at minimum that church leaders now start to get involved, especially the spiritual fathers and mothers of a church. It does not necessarily mean the entire church, all right? It doesn't mean that this automatically becomes like some big public event that you get our neighborhood newspaper, The Villager, to write about, okay? It doesn't say that it's going there, but that it's gotten to the point that you need to get more people involved in the church, especially the church leaders to be involved. Now at this point, if the person still does not turn from their sins, then they're handed over to them. And the nature of the relationship and the fellowship you share has changed. And they may be removed from membership. They may be asked to stop taking the Lord's Supper in corporate worship or attending their group. And now their interaction with this person is mainly about getting them to turn back to life in Christ and away from their destructive and sinful behavior. That's what happens, and that's what changes. Let me talk a little bit more about practical ways that this could play out, and to talk about maybe uh, our church specifically. On the positive side, right, on the positive side, most of the time, church discipline never gets to that level. It never gets to a level where church leaders are getting involved or it becomes this big public spectacle because maybe it's a church leader uh, that, that's involved in this. Like most of the time in healthy churches, it doesn't get to that level. Most of the time, and this is how church discipline often happens in this church, it happens in friendships that you have where people are holding you accountable and they see something in your life and they say, hey, the way that you joke about uh, people is really coarse and demeaning. You should knock that off. And most of the time it's, yeah, you're right. Jesus doesn't call me to do that. I should stop that. And they stop it. That's church discipline. And most of the time in a healthy church, that's how it happens. What Paul is dealing with and what Jesus has in mind is more of a specific situation where there's such hardness of heart that it leads to a level that you need to get more and more and more people involved in hope of convincing that person to turn around and get restored. So a positive way to look at church discipline is a sense that we have all been under it in a sense if we just have good friendships of people that love us and want us to be committed to the ways and life in Jesus Christ. But in other instances, more people get involved. And one of the things that, that is, um, I think, sad about the modern church is often if, if somebody's in persistent sin and, like, a friend comes to them and a community group then confronts them and then church leaders get involved, usually it actually doesn't get to a point where that person actually turns back into fellowship uh, in, in that church and in the Lord. What often happens nowadays is they just leave the church and find a place where they can hide in a church and this will never be brought up or go to a church that won't confront them on that. So this is often what happens is they just leave one local church and go hide in another one. Uh, maybe a church that doesn't have much of a category for this. I've seen this happen quite a bit. 
And this is one of the reasons why, for those of you that have gone through uh, our church membership process, part of the process is that we request a, a transfer of membership from another church, or if we know that you're from another church, that church leaders always have the liberty to reach out to your former church leaders to talk about it. Now, before you start freaking out, most of the time, they have glowing reviews of all of you. You are great. They love, they love what you did in their old church. They're sad to see you leave. They wish they weren't part of, that you guys weren't coming to this church because they wish that you stayed with them. That's most of the feedback that we hear. It's rare where we uncover like a bunch of dirt on somebody. But there is a situation where this often happens, where, where and it's happened every once in a while, where somebody is hightailing out of another church because they got under church discipline, it got, it got really difficult for them to be there, and they were hoping to come here and hide, and that we would never bring it up. And when that happens, we want to know about it, because we want to love the church globally. It's not just about our church gaining numbers, it's about the holiness of Christ, and displaying his name to our city in a way that's consistent with his calling on our lives. And so we want to do church in such a way that we want to honor the churches and backgrounds that other people are coming from, and know what was going on before you come here. Now, this raises another question, and that gets us to the third point of this sermon. What types of things require this? What types of things require church discipline? I want to jump down to verse 11 to unpack that a little bit. Paul says, Now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. That's that phrase we already unpacked there. Again, we are dealing here with a situation where the person claims to be in Christ, but is living in ongoing sin. This isn't a person who is struggling with these sins, but but a person that continues to practice them in a consistent and continuous way and does so without any desire to repent and to battle against these sins. Paul isn't saying that the person who's fighting and struggling against greed, for example, should be under church discipline, but rather this person is greedy. They're not even making an effort to change their way or the way that they behave in light of Christ. This person is greedy. It's who they are. It's not a person that struggles with greed. This person is greedy, for example. So Paul now broadens it from this specific instance of sexual sin to sexual immoral people in general, any sexual practice that's against the framework of Scripture. He mentions greedy people as a way, as, as a reason for church discipline. This is a person who, who is that type of person that always wants more, never content with what they have. They're always grasping after the next thing, and they're never satisfied. He talks about idolaters, and in this context of this letter, it's somebody who is embracing the values and ways of the world, which may be good things that he has made ultimate things. It's a slanderer. It's a person who says things in order to put down others or to intentionally hurt somebody else. Often a slanderer is a person that does this to feel superior about themselves or because the person just simply lacks self-control. He highlights a drunkard. 
It's that not the act of drinking that's condemned in Scripture, nor is it uh, someone who is addicted to alcohol but is pursuing recovery. That's not what Paul has in mind with listing this. It's somebody who is in ongoing and excessive use of drinking that often leads to unacceptable behavior and abuse. That's what's at stake here. Elsewhere in scriptures, drunkenness is called debauchery, which is a, uh, an old school word that means excessive use and indulgence in something. And one of the things that, that um, if you're one of those people here, uh, for example, that you're into social drinking and you push the boundaries too far a lot and you don't think it's a big deal, uh, I have a couple tips just to linger here for a moment before we go to the next thing. Uh, because I know this is the type of church that says, like, uh, you know, down with the Baptists, I'm having my beer, okay? That's kind of the, the vibe here historically. But one of the things I, I've learned pastorally over the years, that, that if that's kind of where you're at, that, that you don't really see a big deal with this, you don't really see a problem, I would encourage you to do two things to keep yourself on the straight and narrow with, with the issue of drinking. Number one, have somebody in your life that's from the recovery community. Sit down with that person, listen to their story, and let the seriousness of that relationship and that person's story puncture your heart in a way that causes you to respect this uh, action a little bit more. If you don't have people in the recovery community in your life, that is one good thing to do if you're a person that drinks. Number two, if you've never done this before, this is a healthy Christian practice for a lot of things in general, but it's healthy to practice fasting from alcohol if you indulge in it. To go for seasons of your life where you can say, I can go months, I can go several months, I can go a long time without having it, because it will reveal to you if it is a problem. If you can't fast from alcohol, and that's a struggle for you, you might want to lean into that a little bit and figure out what's going on, okay? That's a little bit of a, a just a little pastoral detour, a little extra. You didn't even have to pay extra for that, okay? Just something to address with our church family. The last uh, uh, thing that he mentions is a swindler. Who's a swindler? This is a person who extorts others. This is a person that gets ahead in his or her life at the expense of other people. One commentator illustrated it this way. This is a person who kicks down somebody else's ladder so that they can climb up in success and wealth. Now, Paul lists all these things to remind us that it's not just this specific situation that's happened with the stepmom that requires church discipline. There are other types of things that he spells out that, that would potentially require church discipline. And if you look at all of Scripture, I think there's kind of three different categories that, that give rise to church discipline. One is the sins of somebody's character. Well, that's the ones that's often highlighted in these passages. It's the sin of character and disobedience, but then there's also the sins of division. The sins of division is confusing the work of the church should gossip, slander, and causing division against church leaders. That's that's something that could require church discipline. And number three is the sins of belief, or this is the classic, like, heretic type of situation, right? This is a, it, the sins that promote false doctrine as taught in the beliefs of the Apostles and Nicene Creed or the ethics of the Ten Commandments. But the other thing to keep in mind here before I go to the next point is that, yes, 
there's more to it than the situation with the stepmom, but also we shouldn't add things to the list for church discipline that don't find themselves in Scripture, that ought not be there. For example, you will not be under church discipline, or you should never be under church discipline at a church because of your opinions on public policy, all right? You should never be removed from fellowship from the church because you have different views on public policy than your brothers and sisters. You should not be under church discipline because you have disagreements on non-essential theological issues. There's a lot of things like baptism and expression of charismatic gifts or whatever. There's, there's, whole, there's a whole lot of issues that Christians who love Jesus and are committed to the core doctrines of the creeds can disagree on, and they shouldn't be reasons for church discipline. You're not going to be under church discipline if you have disagreement on decisions in the church that just was something that required uh, wisdom or a judgment call. And although I wish this was the case, you won't be under church discipline if you put pineapple on pizza, okay? All right, not any personal preference stuff like that either. So there's, there's, that's the balance that it's more exhaustive than what Paul is dealing with. But also, churches have always got to be careful not to add to the list things that Scripture doesn't put on the list either. Now, number four, I want to deal with the responsibility of the church in this process. Because one of the things that this text is highlighting is that when church discipline is happening, it's not just about the sin of the individual, but you see this strong emphasis on corporate responsibility that happens in the process too. Look at verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." How is the church responding to this sin in their midst? Paul notes they're boasting, which means they're either boasting in the act of sin itself or they're boasting in themselves and their righteousness while ignoring this thing that they're allowing to have happen. And Paul now is not only taking issue with the individual's sin, but the response of the corporate community because they need to take responsibility for what is happening. And he gives this illustration of yeast that leavens the entire batch of dough. In other words, this person's sin is not just his issue and it's just contaminating him, but it's having an impact on all of you in such a way that you need to ask the question, what do we need to do differently? What do we need to take ownership of? What do we need to do because we are not taking seriously the holiness of God in our corporate body? As one commentator put it in a different type of illustration, not leaven, uh, leaven bread, but he says, a little cancer corrupts the whole body. And Paul lingers here in this illustration and even brings up other frameworks that, that's rich in the Old Testament. He's saying that you're taking this seriously because of this religious festival that he has in mind, and it's probably Passover which also involves the sacrificial lamb, that, that the blood is the reason that God's judgment passes over his people. And so he has in mind this just rich 
imagery that's connected to Christ, that Christ's blood was spilt for his people so that they could be forgiven and that they could become holy, and that's the call of the church. And if a church does not take that seriously in how to deal with sins in their community, that they run the risk of it spreading and contaminating the whole thing, and then the holiness of God's people will be at stake. And Paul wants us to take this seriously. And the point that I want to make here, and then I'm going to move on to the fifth and final point, is simply this, that when you deal with sin in your relationships and in your own heart, you need to have this vision that's not just individualistic. There's a corporate reality that we as a church need to take these things seriously because sin never stays at the level of the individual. It's way more destructive than that, and God's people are way more connected as the body of Christ than just this loose association of individualistic people. And that's why God's people are called when these types of things happen to do some soul searching, like what's going on in our church that this thing was allowed to happen? Like what, do we, what did we do and what responsibility do we need to take for these things? So number five, church discipline and those outside the church. That's the last thing that Paul deals with. Look at verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Quickly note that in verse 9, he mentions another letter that he already addressed to them, which means, if you didn't know that, that there was a uh, letter before 1 Corinthians that was written that we don't have. It'd be great. I always think about how cool it would be to have that letter. But it shows you about just the human element of what's going on. That's why I love that he mentions this, that we don't have this letter. We just have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but there were other letters because this was an ongoing back and forth. He already wrote to them once. And 1 Corinthians is the follow-up letter. How many follow-up emails have you had to write to people because you had to clarify what you said and unpack it a little bit more? And it was a little bit longer the next time, right? In a very real sense, this is what's happening in this ancient culture as well. He already addressed some issues. There's some confusion. Now he has to follow up. And one of the things, one of the points of confusion is how this type of topic relates to those outside the church. Maybe there were responses like, oh, maybe I just need to withdraw from society if this is the calling on my life. And Paul corrects that. He says if he's, just, if he's talking about dealing with those outside the church that don't confess the ways of Jesus the same way that you would deal with those inside the church, that you, would, you couldn't even live in the world anymore if that was the case. And he's not saying that he's calling us to do that. He's clarifying that there is a difference between how you deal with ongoing sins of God's people and how you deal with the ongoing sins of those who do not confess the name of Jesus Christ. You deal with these groups differently. Within the church, God works through his people to judge them in hope of restoration. But outside the church, Paul says, it's not my business 
to apply that same level of expectations to those who don't confess Jesus. All right? Our main goal and our posture towards the, the outside world is to change their hearts, not their behavior. It's to give them the gospel and let the transforming power of the gospel then do its work. It's not, and it's one of those things that this is why it's, it's so important. Like, it's not trying to get people to be moral, good people outside the church. That's not the call of the gospel. We are called to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus in hopes that, that unbelief turns to belief, and then stand back and watch how God changes their behavior and approach to the world after that. So Paul here is just, just lingering there to say you can't apply the same standard to those outside of the church. Now, I want to close with this. There's a, there's, this was already a, a sermon that was, uh, was on the longer side, but I want to linger here uh, in conclusion just to to hopefully unpack the heart of this a little bit more, because this can maybe sound really like uh, just a hardcore sermon where it's all about discipline and just like right and wrong and that sort of thing. What's the heart behind that? I want to linger there before we go to this table, okay? I want to linger there. And I thought about um, uh, a person that I got to, to pastor, and, and, and just to be clear, you, you don't know this person, don't go on a witch hunt to try to figure out who this person is, okay? You're not going to find them, all right? But this is a real person that, that, that was involved in my life again that I used to get the, the joy of pastoring, and I got to meet with, with him and his wife, uh, just, uh, and this is, this, is, this, is a, this is a couple that I even got the joy of baptizing, and I got to meet with them because she was concerned that he was about to turn away from the Lord. And part of the, the thing that was wrapped up is that he was in a very destructive habit as well. And so the goal in that meeting was to unpack that, understand that more, and in a very real way of what Jesus taught in the Gospel of Matthew, that another person is getting involved in hope of asking this person to turn from this destructive pathway to not abandon Jesus, but rather abandon this destructive behavior and come back to Jesus for life. We ended that conversation with that being abundantly clear, and now this individual had a classic choice between changing his lifestyle uh, to follow the Lord's commands or changing your faith because you want to remain in your destructive lifestyle. Later, publicly, he confessed that he is no longer a Christian and now went uh, head over heels into the destructive lifestyle that he found himself in. And I remember reading that as his pastor and just, I couldn't do anything else the rest of the day. Like, like my day was ruined. I couldn't do anything else but pray to have just a burden for this situation to text my elders just to, to bear this with me because we've, we've been through a lot, right, as, as a church, as a society in two years with, like, the COVID stuff and political unrest, and it's, it's been tough. But it's been crazy now experiencing this in the middle of it and just thinking about how that's up there for me having somebody abandon the, the cause of Christ and to go into a pattern of destructive behavior that's going to cause him uh, to struggle to hold a job and to be the, the husband that he needs to be for his wife and, and all the implications of this. And it hit me. And there was no joy in that. There was no joy that there had to be a process of 
confronting him in, in hopes that he would come back. And there's no joy in the sense that, in a very real sense, his wife and us are letting him go and handing him over to this destructive pathway. There is absolutely, brothers and sisters, no joy in that. No joy. It's heavy. It stinks. But there is hope. And my hope is, is that the prodigal will come home someday. My hope is, is that as he feels this full force of life outside of fellowship with Christ, that he would look at the pig slop that he's eating and say, what am I doing? And that he would remember that his Father in heaven is eager for him to come home, that he's eager to grant forgiveness, that he's eager to give restoration. And that's what I hope for. I hope that he, he remembers his baptism of who he really is in Jesus Christ, that the old person has died in those waters and the new person has been raised from the dead. I hope he comes back to that identity, and I hope for restoration. And I share that story with you because I know many of you have been there before too, and that's the weightiness of what we're talking about here, because heaven and hell are at stake.